Hi, and welcome to FVCC Nature Journal, the podcast for everyone who loves nature. I'm John Fraley, longtime FVCC instructor in wildlife conservation and introductory ecology. With FVCC Nature Journal, we'll be focusing on the critters and quirks of nature found on the campus, the wide surrounding Flathead Basin, including the Bob Marshall and Glacier National Park, and sometimes we'll expand beyond that. We aim to keep the show lively and fun. And together, we hope to learn lots of fun facts about the fascinating flora and fauna that we are so lucky to live with in our world. Our producer is Colin Burkhardt, a student employee here at FVCC Library. And thanks to Susan Mather, the library director, for offering the library as our podcast home. Today's guest is Jim Williams, noted expert on wildcats in North and South America. Jim, thanks a lot for joining us. Sure. Now, Jim, you've been a friend of the college for a long time. You've done symposia here and done a lot of guest speaking. And we're all excited because you've written this landmark book on puma management that was published by Patagonia in 2018, and it covered pumas, mountain lions, on both continents. Tell us a little bit what it was like to write a book for Patagonia Books. It was pretty daunting, John, because, you know, we're trained as, as biologists to write, you know, um, study area methods, results, discussion, kind of boring science drivel. That's a scientific method to publish in a peer-reviewed journal. In this case... You know, I had to write for a broader audience, and right. it was a lot of fun. I actually wrote the book in 30 days, and uh, it needed a lot of work, a lot of editing, but it was a lot of fun. It was kind of a brain dump of, of stories of, I've had a very fortunate career and a lot of fun stories, So yes, it's, and it's pretty easy to write in first person. That's incredible that you wrote that book in, in 30 days. It's just hard to believe. So it covers pumas on both continents, and today we're going to learn about the mountain lions and their status in North America. And working with cats throughout all of your career, you worked on the Rocky Mountain Front and basically lived with mountain lions for three or four years that you had radio collared and studied. Uh, first off, tell us some of the names that people use to refer to pumas. So clearly in Florida, they're referred to as a panther. And, you know, they, they're endangered panthers in the Everglades, the southern tip of Florida, and they're slowly you know, recolonizing habitats north where they can. There's a lot of development and highways there. Throughout the South South American countries and Central American countries, it's puma, or down in the southern desert, because puma conchalores, the genus and species. But mountain lion's the most common. And when Lewis and Clark came across the continent, they called them panthers, as you note in your book. Yeah, and catamounts were another word they used back east. Just uh, it's It's fascinating. There's a lot of uh, Native American references to this animal as well. And uh, you can think about a fellow hunter, they're going to garner a lot of respect and stories. Tell us about the skull and the teeth and the eye sockets and what all that tells us about the animal's habits. Yeah, so when you look at cat skulls in general, and particularly the large cats, the thing you notice the most are these large eye sockets. They're very visually oriented and they're able to collect light. There's some adaptations that they have, the cats, in low light conditions, and that allows them to sneak up and become a, a, a really effective stock ambush predator. They're like the perfect predator. They're yeah. solitary, yep. they ambush, they get deer, bighorn sheep, hares, porcupines. Then what do they do? They turn the porcupine upside down, don't they? And yeah, porcupines are, you know, they have quills clearly, but yeah, they're no match for a cat. They'll flip them over and um, they actually, they'll, they won't pass up a porcupine typically. Back when we had more porcupines, mm -hmm. it was common when we checked cats from legal hunters, 
that they have quills in the in the lips and the nose and from encounters. Now I've heard the possibility that the fact that we have more mountain lions now may be the reason why there's so much fewer porcupines. What do you think about that theory? Yeah, perhaps, but uh, cause and effect is never that simple. Mm-hmm. Porcupines they were persecuted by you know uh, timber companies pretty and the mm-hmm. and forest uh, foresters pretty pretty aggressively for a long time, and then you probably combine that with the recovery of cats and. You know, there's other predators too, but um, perhaps there's a role there. I don't want to scare anybody, but obviously we have mountain lions on Flathead Valley Community College campus because we have the Stillwater River flowing through. It's brushy, it's timbered, and we have lots of deer. So don't you think there's probably mountain lions on this campus? Yeah, you have a grocery store, and that's deer, and so the lions are here. <laughs> They're typically here at night, and most people never know it. They, uh, We have bears, moose. Um, mountain lions, you know, that wander down the river corridor here. You have a little mild wild habitat down there in town, and then the sun comes up and they're in town. And, and cats, you know, can stay invisible pretty easily. Bears and moose less so when we get phone calls. But, yeah, there's cats periodically going through here. So people don't realize it, but we're not walking down to the still water. They're out hanging around on campus that there could be a mountain lion actually watching them or not very far away. And that's one of the reasons mountain lions and humans don't get into that much conflict because they just are very good at staying away and staying hidden, right? Correct. And cats in general are pretty cryptic in nature with the exception of the social cats in Africa. Okay. So tell us about some of the experiences you had while you were working with these pumas on the east front, basically living with these radio-collared animals for four years. You had up to 20, I guess, radio collar. Yeah. Tell us about some of your experiences working with them there. Well, you know, I was a lot younger then and, and kind of, you know, crazy in the field. And I was able to actually spend the night and follow these cats or family groups between kills they made and learn about the habitats they were using, what they were killing to, to, to eat and how they move through the landscape. You're almost a detective and a tracker because these things are built not to be seen, you know. And I had a radio caller, so I listened for beeps, I look at tracks, you look at sign they leave, kills they made, and every now and again you got a glimpse of them and, and from the air as well. So these, these cats are making a strong comeback across the, at least across North America, and maybe the reason that they're coming back. Was it removal of the bounty, or was it more complicated than that? Yeah, it was uh, poison baits on the forest, removal of bounties, and then uh, researchers like Morris Hornacker in Idaho started uh, uh, putting radios on cats and learning about their life history that led to, uh, you know, creating game animal status in most western states. There's a lot of hound handlers that pursued cats in the winter. They love to do it, that bond with the dog and being in outside in the mountains. And then scientifically based quotas were established in the 70s and 80s, uh, limited entry licenses in some areas. So the combination of science and advocacy from the houndmen, the hunters themselves, they carry a lot of political might, uh, played a large or an outsized role in, in mountain lion recovery in this country over the decades. And full disclosure, you and I worked together for a long time in Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, and we conducted different hunting regulations meetings, and we'd see a lot of angry houndsmen showing up if they thought we were killing too many too many mountain lions, didn't the, we? They watch every move we made, and, <laughs> and sometimes four or 500 people in a meeting, uh, quite boisterous at times. And a actually, lot of passion for the cats. And actually, the houndsman really helped you get your collars on all your animals and still oh, to this we, day. It, researchers could not do work on cats for the most part to do known fate monitoring um, versus DNA um, without the hounds and the, and the capture um, the capture assistance from the houndmen, the hound handlers. There's men and women that have hounds. So the next show, we're going to do uh, mountain lions in, uh, in South America. Mm-hmm. But 
How do you view right now, finishing up here, how do you view the future for mountain lions here in North America? Very bright. Um, they, they exist primarily and because we don't know they're there. But uh, if you think about the deer and elk recovery and management in this country and habitat conservation and public land creation, um, you know, we built their grocery store. As long as we tolerate them, they'll be here. Okay. Do you think there's a segment of society that doesn't tolerate mountain lions? Yeah, they're, they're very small. Um, you think about it. If you have impacts, if you lose livestock and pets, or um, you know, or, or you know, there's a there's a cultural fear of the cats. Of course, it's common sense. They're not gonna, you know, want them near them. Uh, but most people are pretty accepting of cats in the mountains. You know, away from their home. Sure. So before we go, Jim, what's the scariest experience you've had with a mountain lion? And I know you're probably going to say, oh, I'm never scared. But you had to. I mean, being out in the field with those lions, like for that four-year period, you had to have some scary experiences. I remember one of the things in your book you talked about getting, you know, urinated on from above when you were trying to take a cat out of a tree. What are, what's, what's some of the scariest experiences yeah, you've had? Well, that wasn't frightening. That, was, that just smelled. <laughs> Pungent smells. It would have been and frightening a, to me. And uh, But, no, one, one time I had a cat come off you know, as it was going down, kind of temporarily uh, lurch down when I wasn't looking and take about a six-inch piece of my wool pants out in the inner thigh. And I let go, and thank gosh, I had a climbing harness on. Uh, But then it went down in my lap, and, you know, there was lots of fun things. You're young, and you think you're immortal as a field person, and I did too. Getting lost, caught in blizzards, trying to start a fire, not get frostbitten, um, get uh, not you know getting into bar fights in local rural towns. And there's <laughs> a lot of fun stories. Some people didn't like what you were doing, right? No, you know, no one trusts a biologist, right? <laughs> you know, in a in a rural town. Well, Jim, thanks a lot for coming on. I'm looking forward to our next show where we talk about South America, and we'll see you then. You bet, John. That's all the time we have for today for this segment of the Nature Journal. Thanks for joining us, and please watch the FVCC website and Facebook page for more shows as they're posted. Also, feel free to post questions or ideas. Our next show will feature mountain lions and all things cats in South America, again with field expert Jim Williams. I'm John Fraley, and I'll see you next time. 